So today we're, we're continuing in our series. If you're, if you're visiting with us today, we're really glad that you're here. We've, we've been uh, walking through the Gospel of Mark over the last several months, and uh, we are in chapter 3 of, of, of Mark, and we're in this series called The Lion Roars. And, and so today we're going to look at one of the most interesting passages, I think, in, in all of Scripture. Uh, and hopefully there's going to be a question that's answered today that maybe you have asked at some point in your life or you've wondered about at some point during your spiritual journey. So let me just kind of set it up this way and, uh, you know, just, just kind of frame it, um, you know, this way. So, so really the good news of Jesus is, is really the greatest news in the history of the world. So that's, that's certainly not an overstatement. I mean, it's just the truth. I mean, when you, when you think about that, that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven. We can, we can have the promise and the reality of eternal life. And we can experience an ongoing personal relationship with the God of the universe. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And it is, it is incredible. It's, it's unfathomable when you, when you think about it. And I think, you know, we, we talk about it so much in church. I think it's easy for us just kind of you know, shrug at it, kind of take it for granted because we, we hear it so much. But it's, it's just really, really astounding, um, you know, the gospel of Jesus is. And so when you think about throughout the history of the church, through, through 2,000 years, there's story after story after story of people committing the most egregious sins. You know, terrorists and serial killers and rapists and, you know, murderers and you know, people that take advantage of, of other people. And, and these people, these stories of these people, they turn to Jesus Christ. They repent of those sins and they turn uh, to, to God for grace and mercy. And, and they experience the complete forgiveness of God. They may be serving a prison sentence, but they have been released from years of guilt and shame from, from just the most serious of sins and it's just it's just incredible it is it is amazing it's why we call it amazing grace and uh, it's just pretty incredible when you think about it that, that no matter what you've done if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ um, every and all of your sins have can be completely forgiven except for one except for one now that I've gotten everybody's full attention, um, there is one sin in the Bible where the Bible says it's unforgivable. There's one sin. And that's the one we're going to look at today. Now, certainly, I'm approaching it kind of practically today. If there is one unforgivable sin in the Bible, we all kind of lean forward with anticipation because we want to know what that is. We want to know what is the line that we should not cross uh, so explain that line to me very clearly. So that's what we're going to try to do today. And so in the passage that we're going to look at today from Mark chapter 3, Jesus is going to talk about the unforgivable sin, the, the eternal sin, if, if you will. And uh, to understand why Jesus makes the statement, we need to understand the context for it. We need to understand uh, the conversation that leads up to it. So we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 20 uh, through verse 30. So I'm going to ask, uh, out of reverence for the Word of God, would you stand, if you're willing and able, uh, for the reading of the Word of God today? 
So Mark records this. He says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of their mind. He's out of his mind. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called to them and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a, a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So truly I say to you, all sins will, will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So I told you this was an interesting passage, and it really is. There's a lot going on in this passage. So what I want to do today is kind of communicate it to you in three different movements. What we're going to see, the first movement is, is a conclusion, and, and then we're going to see a counter, and then we're going to see a caution. So a conclusion, a counter, and a caution. So let's, so let's look at, first of all, the conclusion. We see this in verse Verse 20 says this, uh, Mark does, and then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they, so they couldn't even eat. And then when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now I shared with you last week that everywhere Jesus went, he attracted large crowds uh, to him. I mean, just scores of people, thousands of people followed Jesus everywhere uh, he went so much so that it was very common for Jesus and the disciples not to be able to take care of their own needs because the demands of the crowd were so intense. And so a lot of times they couldn't rest. They didn't even have time to eat because the crowds were just swarming them at, 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 you know, so many times. But then Mark tells us this interesting observation about the family of Jesus. So the family of Jesus, they live in Nazareth, which is not really that far from, from the Sea of Galilee. And apparently the family of Jesus, we, we wish we knew more about this. Mark doesn't share it uh, because Mark probably doesn't have the details on this. But it's just interesting that Jesus' family is really concerned about him. They're concerned about the demands of the crowd. They're concerned about, you know, the busyness that the Jesus and the disciples are engaged in, the ministry that they're involved in. They're concerned about the rumors that are circulating about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And, and then they're very much concerned about the escalating tensions between Jesus and the Pharisees, which we have seen in the previous, in the previous chapter. So, so the family of Jesus, are they're, they're just really concerned about Jesus. And they're, they're probably thinking to themselves, maybe he's going overboard with some of this Messiah talk. 
And what's fascinating about that is if you, you don't have to turn there, but if you wanted to go back later and look at John 7, uh, John tells us in John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him at first. So his own family is really not jiving with what Jesus has told them privately. And uh, they don't believe in him. In fact, John says it like this, even his brothers did not believe in him. And so, so Jesus' family, they traveled from Nazareth, and their plan was that they would seize Jesus. They would scuttle him away from the crowds and, uh, and get him to safety for his own good. And their conclusion was Jesus was out of his mind. Mark tells us that. He tells us that specifically. That was the conclusion of Jesus' family about him. And I just find that really fascinating to me. So there's the first thing that you notice, the first conclusion that's made about Jesus. But that's not the only conclusion that has been made about Jesus. Let me show it to you. Let me show you the conclusion of the, of the religious leaders of the day in verse 22. Now certainly this is not all of the scribes and the Pharisees, um, but, but this a significant number of them. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So, so, just, so just kind of imagine this. You've got, you've got the family of Jesus saying he's out of his mind. He's got to be deceived. <clears throat> and, and, then, and then you have the Pharisees making this judgment about Jesus that... Uh, you know, that he's operating in the power of darkness. That he is operating in the power of Satan. That that's how he's doing all of his ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, his miracles. Everything that he's doing, everything that they're seeing, they're saying, their conclusion is he's, he's, he's demon-possessed. He is doing this by the power, by the power of Satan. And so it's not that they believed he was charismatic. It's not that they believed he was psychotic. They believed he was demonic. And, uh, and so this is, this is really what Jesus is dealing with. So, so you have the family concluding one thing, and then you've got the religious leaders concluding another, and really it's not much different than how people, many people view Jesus even today, if you talk to him on the street. There are a lot of people today that have a lot of different mixed opinions about who Jesus is, and uh, all you have to do is just ask people, and uh, they will tell you, in fact, uh, Ligonier Ministries did a 2020 survey of Americans, and uh, 52% of Americans said that Jesus was a good religious teacher, but nothing more than that. He was a good religious teacher, but nothing more. Now, you probably are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his famous argument uh, where, where Lewis really makes the case that there is no way he could he could just be a good religious teacher. There's just no way. That, like of all the possibilities, you can't go with that one because of the things that Jesus said. He was either deceived about himself, which is where his family was going, or he was a deceiver, which was where the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law were going. And so he was either a liar or he was a lunatic, but the one thing he couldn't be is just a good teacher. That's, that's just, he just could not be that, according to C.S. Lewis, and, and I would concur with that. Now, this is the conclusion that the people are coming to when they look at the Son of God, they, they hear him teach, they see him do his ministry, this is the conclusion that they landed on for them. Now, 
let's just apply this for a minute because we have the advantage of looking back over 2,000 years. We have the advantage of you know, having scripture at our disposal and so we understand more fully than, than they did. But let's just kind of apply this just for a minute today. Church, um, as we kind of think about what Jesus had to go through, um, if people misunderstood, here's the application, if people misunderstood and misjudged Jesus, then they're going to misjudge and misunderstand us. So we're living in a time where I don't think we've ever been more divided as a country, more divided culturally, more divided politically, more, you just name it. We're just divided in every single way. And so as we live the Christian life among our family members, among our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, among the community at large, on social media, church, we have to understand people are going to misunderstand us and they're going to misjudge us. That's just part of it. And uh, it's becoming, you know, a thing. And it's probably going to become more and more of a thing in the coming years uh, as the culture grows more hostile uh, towards the Christian faith. And I think we have to understand we're new at this. But Christians all over the world, they, they're veterans at this. They get it. And so we just have to understand that, that a mature place in the Christian life is people are going to misjudge, misunderstand us. They're going to persecute us. They will condemn us. And so that's okay. Because if they did that to Jesus, they'll do it for us or do it to us. Now, just briefly, how, how do you handle that when that happens? Well, let me just share it with you this. First of all, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at that. People don't understand why you do what you do or why you don't do what you don't do or why you don't fall into the cultural narrative, okay, that we see uh, all around us. Don't be surprised that you're persecuted by that as if something strange were happening to you. Here's the Son of God in our midst. And his family is saying he's insane and the religious leaders of the day say that he's demon-possessed. So just think about that. So don't be surprised. Secondly, the Bible says if we're persecuted or condemned for our faith, we need to rejoice because that's the mark that we're part of the kingdom of God. We need to rejoice. We need to rejoice in our, in our uh by God's grace, exalted position of being in the kingdom of God because, because we know that the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. And then third, the thing that I would say this is when someone condemns you, when someone persecutes you, the only appropriate response back is to love them anyway. That's the only response back. And it is so powerful when someone... When, it is the most powerful witness in the world when you return evil with good. When you love someone who's not loving you. When you're secure in the love of your heavenly father and you return that to someone else who doesn't deserve it. It reminds us we didn't deserve the love of our heavenly father either, but he gave it to us. And so it's a powerful witness when we respond. It's, it's the most effective sermon you could ever preach it's just loving people who insult you and ridicule you and persecute you and um, and God will give us grace to be able to stand 
underneath that. So that's the conclusion. We're just setting, we're just kind of setting this whole thing up. But I want you to notice Jesus' counter to this conclusion. I want you to notice, uh, and we see this in verse, in verse 23, how Jesus responds to specifically the Pharisees. A little bit later, he responds to his family. But, uh, but here, we're going to focus on his response to the scribes and the teachers of the law. Look at verse 23. And he, and he called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided itself against itself, then that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, there's a lot that he is saying here, so let's just kind of unpack it. Jesus counters with a question. So their assertion is, their judgment on him is, you're, you're demon-possessed. You're operating out of the power of the devil. And Jesus' question back to them is, how can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't even make sense. That's not even logical. I mean, Jesus' work is so diametrically opposed to Satan's work. How can Jesus be empowered by Satan? Doesn't even make sense. And so in other words, another way of thinking about it is Jesus kind of basically saying here, if my exorcisms really are bankrolled by the devil, then the devil really doesn't have a very good business plan. I mean, that's just ludicrous. What is Satan's goal? To expand his kingdom? To diminish the kingdom of God? What does every exorcism do? It dismantles the kingdom of darkness. Just shreds it. Just tears it completely down. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, if Satan is divided against himself, he can't stand. If, 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 a, if a nation is divided against itself, it can't stand. That's an interesting warning for us today in the United States. And then a house divided against itself cannot stand. So what Jesus is pointing to is the necessity, the essentialness of unity in relationships, in a group, in an organization, in movements, whatever you want to call it. Unity is essential or it can't function. Like a baseball team will never win, can never win the pennant if the locker room is divided. It's not even going to happen. They're not even going to make the playoffs, probably. And then a church can't carry out the Great Commission if they're not united behind God's word. Certainly a business can't have success if the leadership is divided on direction. And then a nation that's so incredibly divided culturally and politically, it can't stand long term either. And so that's what Jesus is saying. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. But then he goes into a second parable, and this is the parable of the house. And he's, he's really talking about uh, somebody that, you know, you're, you're trying to go into someone's house and, you know, plunder their goods. And, and uh, you, you can't do it unless, unless first you bind the strong man, the owner of the house, Jesus says. And, uh, and, so, and so what Jesus is kind of alluding to here is this, that a person's life's filled with demons, They've invited the work of the enemy into their life. They, that literally demonic spirits have residence inside of that person. And the owner of that person's house, body, if you will, is Satan. 
And that what Jesus is saying is, if, if, if you're going to plunder that house, you've got to tie up the strong man. You've got to deal with the owner before you're going to go in and plunder all of his goods. And uh, so that's a, that's a parable that Jesus gives us. And uh, it's really a, an insight into how Jesus views what he came to do. Because what he came to do, church, the reason why Jesus came is to tie up the strong man and to clean out the house. That's why he came. See, he is telling you what he is about to do. He is signaling it. That Jesus has to do something for humanity before he can do something to humanity. And what he does, the work of Jesus Christ, is to set us free from the power of Satan in our life. The power of his demonic forces, the power of darkness in our life. So whatever it is that's got you pinned down, whatever addiction, whatever life-dominating sin, whatever, whatever problems just got you pinned spiritually against the wall, Jesus came to set you free. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. I've come to, to bind up the strong, the strong man, the devil himself. Let me, let me, let me just kind of show this to you in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, to sh show you the beauty of, of really Jesus' work, the description of what Jesus came to do for us. And uh, I promise we're going to get to the unforgivable sin, but we're just setting it up. So let me show you Ephesians 2 right here. He says, he says this, and you were, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked. So you were dead. Like your spirit was not alive to God. It was not aware of God. It was not sensitive to God's spirit and God's word. You're just dead. Dead means dead. And, uh, and so you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he says, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. So there was at one point, we were not only dead, but we were actively following the enemy. We we're actively following the devil. And he says, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he just gives, he just gives a list, a descriptive list of who we were before we came to Christ. But notice what he says, the next two words, the most important two words in all of the New Testament, but God. But God. This is who we were, but God. We were living for the enemy. We were living for our desires and under his influence. We were objects of wrath, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. That is unbelievable. And that's what Jesus is saying. I've come, what I've done is I've tied up the prince of this world, the prince of the air. And so Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm not a lunatic and I'm not lying. I'm Lord. I'm Lord of heaven and earth and I'm Lord over the forces of darkness. Now, we get into the caution and this is Jesus' caution. It's his warning uh, for them. 
And uh, I think he just calls it out like it is. Let me share it with you in verse 28, because this is where things get really personal for us today. So verse 28, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right, so what Jesus is saying in this passage is he's really saying that there's a sin. There's one sin that can't be forgiven. And uh, he describes it as an eternal sin. And so you see clearly that there are at least two different categories of sins, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's sins that we wrestle with every day. And then there's this one category, this eternal sin, that's in a category all by itself. So what is this eternal sin? What is this standout unforgivable sin. Well, I, I think the first thing to understand about it is that this is a sin, the, the eternal sin or the sin uh, that he's talking about here is a sin related to blasphemy. And blasphemy is really when a person elevates themselves to the status of God or they reduce God down to, you know, our status or even lower. So blasphemy really contains both of those elements. It's elevating myself and pride and arrogance, or it's diminishing and distorting the character and the essence and the nature of God down to our level, down to our size. So both of those things kind of encompass blasphemy. We can, we, we can never think too highly of God, but we can think too lowly of him, certainly. And so the Apostle Paul even mentions that before he became a Christian, before he was saved, he was a blasphemer. And uh, what he did is he, he lowered the character and the nature of, of God. That's, that's, what he, that's, what he, that's what he did. So, so, but Jesus takes this a step further. And, uh, and it's not just blasphemy, it is a more serious blasphemy. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so to understand that, let me show you a passage from Matthew. Matthew records kind of this same piece, but gives us a little bit more information about it. So we'd like to compare those passages. And so Matthew 12, 32, you don't have to turn there, but just let me show it to you. This is where Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So the violation that he's talking about here is, is blasphemy, but it's not against God the Father. It's blasphemy, but it's not against the Son, God the Son. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is it about the Holy Spirit that separates him out in this way, why would, why would Jesus single out blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, we need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does, does a couple of things. What the Spirit does is the Spirit is the, is the person of the Godhead who, who brings and facilitates the salvation of God to us. And so what he does is he does this in two, two parts. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. The Holy Spirit shows us our need for a Savior. 
The Holy Spirit reveals to us our selfishness, our brokenness, our, you know, our, our sinfulness, our selfishness, the whole thing. He, he reveals to us our need for a Savior. But then secondly, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the person of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit's job is to put the spotlight on Jesus and to exalt him and raise him up and to show us who Jesus is and what he came to do. The Holy Spirit does that. And so he reveals to us uh, kind of the redemptive work of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit enables us to experience that work, saving work in our own lives. And so so when a person rejects that conviction of the Spirit, and then a person rejects the revelation of Jesus Christ through the Spirit, that person is committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the eternal sin. That's exactly what these religious leaders were doing in his midst. And that's why he called it out. Because in essence, they were... The Holy Spirit was convicting them of their sin. They were saying, I reject that. And then the Holy Spirit was showing them the person of Christ. And they said, he has a demon. So you see what they're doing is they're, they're taking God and they're lowering him down. They're reducing him. And they're calling something perfect and good evil. And that is a part of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so it is really reducing and rejecting the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just make this real practical, all right? So, so I want you to imagine we're on a college campus and somebody's brought in a well-known Christian speaker and an apologist. And he's gonna speak to the, you know, to the students. There's 300 students in, crowded in this room. And he's speaking about Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus. And so a lot of people in this auditorium, a lot of people are listening, and the speaker begins to unfold and, and share who Jesus is and what he came to do and why it's reasonable to believe in him. Because he lived and he died and he rose. And, and, and so the speaker is just, you know, speaking the gospel and articulating it. And what, what's happening is the students listening, they think that a man is speaking to them. But what's really happening is the Holy Spirit is speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking and revealing Christ. The Holy Spirit is convicting hearts and putting a putting a searchlight on selfishness and sin and, you know, self-centeredness and all of that. And so, so all of that is happening between, between the speaker and the people. There's something supernatural happening in that very room. And, and it's happening so vividly. Jesus being, is being lifted up and the spotlight is being placed on him so gloriously that many in the room are believing in him. Many in the room are beginning to see their own sin and take responsibility for it and to confess it and to believe the message and the revelation uh, that the Spirit is bringing to Jesus Christ. But there's also another group in the room who is saying, nope, nope, nope. 
they'll say, oh, that's just ridiculous. Jesus was just a good teacher, but nothing more. He, he, he was a lunatic. He really wasn't the son of God. He, he really didn't die. He didn't, he, he, he didn't, live, a, he didn't live a sinless life. I, 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 just don't, I just don't believe that. There are people in the room saying that. And uh, they're saying, you know, I don't believe he's the Messiah. I don't believe he died on the cross. I don't believe he rose from the dead. I, I, think, he was, I think it's just a fantasy. I think the whole thing's made up. I think somebody made this up. It's a conspiracy. That's what I think. I think somebody just tried to get rich. And you know what that is? What they're doing is they're reducing God down to our level or even below. And they are, they are committing the unpardonable sin and so that's what's happening they're reducing and reducing jesus and then they're rejecting the work of the spirit in their own lives you see the reason why this is the unforgivable sin is because if your heart is that hard to the work of the spirit and you reject the conviction and you reject the revelation that the spirit brings once you've rejected that, once you've hardened your heart against that, there's no other means for you by which you're saved. It, it's not possible for you to be saved at that point because, because what you're doing is you're sitting on a branch high up off the ground and you're sawing it. You see that? You're, you are rejecting the only way you can experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and so that's that's exactly what is happening and so the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us he he reveals him to us uh, in all of his glory in all of his goodness and and so and so we we engage in this unforgivable sin by just saying no thanks not for me now how in the world do we apply this like, like, where do we go with this? How do we put our hands on the handlebars and, and, and really uh, apply this? Let me, let, me, let me share, let me give you four suggestions on this. I think as we, as we kind of think about what Jesus, his caution here, his warning here about the unforgivable sin, I, I, would, I would really challenge you to listen up. And what I mean by that is this, that um, I want you to just imagine that we're in that college classroom and I'm the speaker. And uh, I imagine that I'm sharing uh, the, the work of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I start sharing with you the message of the gospel that we are born sinners. That all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And, you know, we're all in the same boat, right? We've all fallen short of him. And, um, and so we're all born this way. We're, we're born sinners. And uh, we've broken God's law at every point. And, and then, and then the, the news gets even worse from there because not only are we born sinners, but the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is eternal death. The, the payment is eternal separation from God. And so humanity has a big problem. Because, because now we're separated from God and no amount of good works and no amount of effort and no amount of religiosity, no amount of 
morality can cover the chasm, the debt that is owed between, between us and God. And so the wages of sin is this eternal death. And so, so people will ask me, they'll say, well, Scott, I just don't get that. It just doesn't seem fair that God would punish sin, you know, with an eternal punishment. It seems like the punishment outweighs, you know, the crime. And so that's the answer. And we, 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 we push back and we think that's unjust. And the thing that I would say about that is this. I want you to kind of think about this. I want you to think about, I want you to think about a middle schooler punching another middle school student. What would the punishment be for that middle school student? The punishment would probably be that they would get in-school suspension. But I want you to imagine that while that middle school student is in in-school suspension, that that student turns and punches a teacher. So it's the same crime, but now it's a different person. It's a teacher. What would be the punishment for that middle school teacher? Probably get expelled, right? Should be, should be. Doesn't happen in all cases, but it should. Um, uh, they should be expelled. So just imagine with me that during their expulsion, they don't have anything to do. So that same middle schooler punches a police officer. Then what happens at that point? Well, they get arrested because that's a crime. It's against the law. You can't punch a police officer. So imagine this, that, that you know, somehow they get loose, they get free, they go up to the president of the United States, they get through Secret Service, and they punch the president of the United States, and the Secret Service draws their guns, and they fire, and they shoot and kill that middle school student. Now, what's happened? What's happened there is it's the same crime every situation, but the crime has been perpetrated on someone different every single time and with that the severity has increased the severity of the punishment has increased every time and so the point of all of that is this sin is just craziness it's just we're sinning against an eternal god and there are eternal consequences to that but there's good news and the good news is that Jesus came to bind the strong man. He, he, came, he came to clean out the house, to set the prisoner free. He came to pay the penalty for, for our sins on the cross. That's exactly what he did. And, and, so, and so if you believe this, if you receive the message, then you experience the forgiveness and the grace of God into your life. You, you get a new start and a new heart. But listen, church, but to reject what I have just said, to say no thanks you're getting very very close if not already there with the sin against the Holy Spirit now you know I shared with you last week that it takes the average person maybe seven or eight times to hear the gospel you know before they before they come to faith in Christ I think what happens during those seven to eight times their hearts softening each time but with the sin against the Holy Spirit, their heart is just hard. They don't want anything to do with it. And they reject it outright. And so, what do we do? Hebrews 3.15 says it like this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Don't do that. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. 
So, so how, would you, how would you receive this message? You, well, very simply, you admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You ask for his forgiveness. And uh, you commit your life to following him. So, so that's what I mean when I say, listen up. Second thing that I would say is this. Take a breath. You know, in this whole talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, my challenge to you, church, is to take a breath. Because a lot of Christians, not knowing what the unforgivable sin really is, are often afraid that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And so they're like, oh, my life is a mess. I've got all these sins in my life. You know, I probably have committed the unforgivable sin. I've crossed that line. I've crossed the point of no return, and I'm really concerned about it. But here's the thing I would say. What's interesting is this, if you're concerned that you committed the unforgivable sin, that's the number one sign that you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Because somebody who's committed it, they don't care that they've committed it. Their heart's hard. But if you're like a little nervous about it, you haven't. And so if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, church, there's no way that you can commit the unforgivable sin. You've been born again. You've been regenerated by the power of the Spirit. You've been adopted by your heavenly Father. You you have been transferred from darkness into life. You have been made right in the eyes of God, and you've been sanctified in his very presence. That's what's happened to you. In fact, the best verse in the entire passage that we're looking at is verse 28. I want you to notice how incredible this verse is. Verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you know how incredible that is? Do you know how amazing that is? Do you know how joyful that is that your sins and my sins can be forgiven? Does that mean that we can go and live however we want to and do whatever we want to do? No. Why? Because the strong man has been, has been bound and the house has been cleaned out. You are brand new in Jesus So church, listen up, take a breath. Number three, it's not you. It's not you. What do I mean by that? One of the greatest privileges we have as Christians is to share Christ with the world, to to testify to his goodness, to the the gospel, the greatest news uh, that we've ever heard in the history of humankind. And uh, our concern might be that others might reject us. And I want to speak to that concern. You imagine that college classroom with those 300 students and that speaker, and maybe half the room rejected that speaker. They didn't really reject the speaker. They rejected Jesus. And so what that does is that helps us to see the big picture, that it's really not you. It's not you that they're responding to. It's, it's the gospel it's Jesus that they're responding to. So, so this brings me great freedom and great encouragement uh, to share my faith because when I share Christ and somebody comes to faith in Christ through me, I can't take the credit for that because that's the work of God. And, and neither do I share blame or responsibility for somebody who refuses to believe in the gospel of Jesus. So that's not on me. That's on them. And so church, it's not you. And the more we realize that, the more we're free 
to really share our faith. Lastly, let me say this. As Christians, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. Paul says this in Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We have to be very, very careful, dear Christian, to not let your heart grow hard towards the Holy Spirit. A Christian can do that. A Christian can be disappointed with God. A Christian can be angry with God. A Christian can be frustrated with God to, to the point where your heart becomes hard to the Holy Spirit and you're keeping him at a distance because of something in, in your life financial or something in your life physical or something in your life medical or something in your life circumstantial. Whatever it is, we can get angry at God and blame him and then our love for him grows cold and then we come to church and we're just going through the emotions but underneath we're seething and what the apostle paul says is this we need to keep in step with the spirit we need to trust in all of those circumstances that god is going to use them for good we, we may not see it we may not understand it just yet but even in those circumstances god has promised that he'll bring good out of it and we need not we need not to be hard in our hearts toward him. We need him more than ever. And, uh, and so that's the bottom line. We need to walk in the spirit. Because the spirit is living and active. The spirit is always working. He's always showing us. Always working in us to change us, to grow us. And, and to reveal uh, more and more of the person and work of Jesus to us. And he does that for his glory and for our joy and that's that's what we need to do is keep in step with the spirit so let's pray together heavenly father you are a good good father you're so good you you gave what was most precious to you your son for us and not only that, but you gave us the Holy Spirit. And he is the means by which we experience you and your redemption. And God, I just confess that it's easy to allow the enemy to lie to us. It's easy to just be frustrated at circumstances and difficulties and heartaches and hardships so much so that we're just mad at you and Lord I just pray that that you would give us grace that you would help us to see that you're with us that you love us and you have what is very uh, what is best for us in mind so would you give us faith for that today would you would you help us just to come before you humbly, acknowledging our need, acknowledging your sweetness, your goodness. And so God, we need you. Spirit of the living God, have your way with us. Shape us, mold us, break us, if you will, 
so your sweetness would be flowing into our lives. We say yes to the Spirit. We say yes to the Spirit's revelation of who Jesus is. We say yes. We're all in for you today, God. Would you give us grace to live that out every day? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.